Welcome to the Inspire Your Life podcast. I am your host, Morgan Kimbaro. Our guest today is Aaron Pete, trainer, fighter, family man, all around great human being. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Look, been looking forward to this for a while. Absolutely. Very excited to have you. Well, just start from the beginning, uh, Coach. You know, what was your inspiration of getting involved in, in fighting and training from a young age? You know, just talk us through that and and, you know, the process of beginning and, and where you are today? Um, as far as that goes, that's a, a lifelong journey. My uh, dad put me in martial arts when I was a kid, uh, especially back when I was growing up uh, in the 80s. Uh, pretty much everybody did some form of karate or kung fu. Um, so I was in all three, karate, kung fu, and taekwondo. Uh, and that was when I was a lot younger. I grew up playing soccer. And started playing rugby when I was 19, um, so I was used to uh, physical sports from a, from a pretty young age. Um, soccer is a lot rougher than people give it credit for. You know, you think it's kind of because of the professional level at the way that they kind of like dive so much and everything. But I tell a lot of people if uh, you think soccer is like a, a, a weak sport, uh, come play one of the play a game with me and. Uh, Watch this six foot five Latino center back slide tackle you, and you'll really quick figure out how physical and violent of a game it actually is. Um, but then when I started playing rugby, rugby is a, a whole nother level of uh, controlled violence, if you will. But it's also a very big on uh, sportsmanship, camaraderie, um, being a true gentleman. They say it's a, a, a hooligans game played by gentlemen. And so when I started playing rugby at 19 years old, that really changed my life in a lot of ways. Taught me about dedication, sportsmanship, um, being a part of something bigger than you because it's very much, very much a team sport. It's not an individualized sport. It's 15 people working towards the same goal. And if there's one weak link in those 15 people in rugby, then the whole thing breaks down a lot like um, you know, society we live in today. Or anything, I like to say, starts from the top and goes all the way down. And then uh, getting into fighting is a little bit much of, of a different story because I started training uh, jujitsu in 2006, had my first fight in the uh, summer of 2008. And um, uh, it's, I'm not a big, huge, uh, muscular, handsome guy like you. I'm, <laughs> I'm you know, Thank a you. little bit leaner. And You're uh, a good-looking uh, guy. Oh, stop, stop. But uh, uh, I'm what you might refer to as a smaller man. You know, I'm I'm five foot ten, but I'm not like muscle bound or anything. So as at a glance, um, you know, some people think that they can kind of like push someone around me like a or like me around. But um, from the beginning, even when I was growing up as a kid, I always had kind of a chip on my shoulder. It wasn't uh, always easy when I was growing up, but I'm very fortunate to to live a really good life. My father was always there for me. Um, my mom and I had a great relationship, but they got divorced when I was younger. And so there was those few problems there. And uh, when I was going to school, I had kind of a chip on my shoulder, and I was never uh, afraid of the fight. Um, and so as uh, my rugby career started in uh, 1993, I played for almost 10 years. And uh, when I got out of playing rugby, uh, I played rugby up in Boise, Idaho for Snake River Rugby Football Club. Mm. We actually won the Division II National Championship in 1996 in uh, Chicago. And uh, when my rugby career was winding down in 2001, 2002, um, I started going back to playing soccer just to feed that athletic fire. 
Um, you know, when I was younger, I was pretty fortunate to uh, always have uh, really pretty girls. But that kind of like, especially when I was younger and going out to the bars all the time, would have dudes like, um, you know, giving me some stick, as they would say in English, giving, you know, a hard time or, you know, trying to intimidate me or pick up on my girl or whatever. And uh, that continued to kind of like happen throughout my younger life. And uh, when I was playing rugby, um, my girlfriend at the time was Brazilian, uh, mm. half Brazilian. Her father was from Sao Paulo. And her brother, when jiu-jitsu started to kind of blow up in the mid-90s, uh, started doing jiu-jitsu in 1997. And as he got more accustomed to it, um, he used to start, he was always telling her, you got Aaron's got to get into jiu-jitsu. Because, you know, he's aggressive, he's the athlete, and he's long and lanky, and his body would transfer transfer perfectly over to jiu-jitsu. And I was like, yeah, I'll get into it one day, but my main focus at the time was playing rugby, and I really wanted to make the, the USA Eagles a national team. Like, we were that good of a team. We sent some, some players to the national team at that time in the 90s. And um, so I uh, never really wanted to do anything that was going to risk injury, and keep me out of a portion of the season. Up there, they don't play through the summer. Uh, they play in the spring and the fall. Summers are hot. Winters are really cold in the northwest, obviously. And so I kind of like always pushed it off, pushed it off, pushed it off. And then um, when I stopped playing rugby uh, in Boise and I moved back to San Diego, where I was born and raised in 2001, um, you know, I started, that was when jujitsu gyms were starting to open in more places. MMA hadn't made it onto the big scene yet. So there weren't MMA gyms everywhere like you see now in San Diego. And um, so it was always in the back of my mind. And I started playing soccer again. And I actually threw myself into playing soccer big time. And I started playing for this um, semi-professional soccer team called uh, Arsenal FC. And we had three sides. And I was playing and starting for the second side and was a sub for the first side team, which was playing at Mesa College Stadium at the time. So I was like, oh, I'm going to, like, try and make MLS while I still have some athletic, you know, youth in me. And that was at that point, you know, I was like 26, 27. And so um, uh, in 2005, when that was starting to wind down and I was still playing soccer all the time, uh, I actually got in a fight. I was uh, um, driving my car in this uh, uh, shopping center, and it was at uh, – was coming out of that was old Washington Mutual Bank before the crash in uh, I think 2008, and that turned into Chase Bank. Mm -hmm. I'll remember it vividly, and I'm dry. I'm up and living up in Encinitas at the time, and the banks right here is a huge shopping center, and uh, El Camino Real Street is right there, and I had pulled some money out of the the um, ATM and drive-through ATM in the back, and I was pulling out here. And as I was pulling out, these old people didn't see me, and they start walking across the street. But I'm, like, very respectful. I'm, I just I just stop. And the old man looks at me, waves his hand, like, to say, sorry, we didn't see you. Thank you for letting us walk across. And I wave my hand back. Basically, in my mind, I'm like, take your time. I got all the time in the world. Patience is a virtue. Amen. And respect goes a long way. And uh, as they're, like, walking in front of me, this guy pulls off the street, and I had turned out this way, and so when I saw them, I was stopped a little bit in this lane. And they're, like, walking across the street, and I'm, like, waiting for them to get across as I see this truck coming, and the guy barely misses them, and I just pull the ass end of my car out at the last second, and he barely misses my car. Like, I thought he was going to hit me. 
and he screamed something derogatory out the window, uh, and he was in this big, huge truck with a camper. And so um, me with a chip on my shoulder, I screamed something derogatory back at him out the window. I stick my head out the window and tell him where he can go and what he can do when he gets there. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm in my little Honda Civic car, uh, sedan, two doors, pretty fast. But as a Honda Civic, he's in like a big Ford F-150 with a huge camper on the back. And when he hears me stick my head out and say something, he immediately, like I heard the wheel screech, turns comes down, goes down this lane, turns again, like, he's coming for me. Turns again, pulls his truck up, and I, like, I, like, look up, I'm, like, where's the road? I'm not afraid of a fight at the time, but I wasn't looking to get in one when what I could see from the uh, uh, view out of the car, this dude was big. <laughs> and, and, and as I look up, I'm, like, where's El Camino Real? Like, I'm gonna, I'm, at first, I'm, like, I'm gonna get, uh, you know, F, F out of here. Are we allowed to cuss? No. Are we allowed to cuss on this, or should we not? Yeah. Maybe Keep it to a minimum. Keep it to a minimum, okay. yeah. So as I look to, for a way to just get out, uh, there's like five cars backed up to El Camino Real. There was nowhere to go. And he pulls his car up at this point. I'm looking around. I'm like, and he comes to a screeching stop, gets out of his truck immediately. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> there's nowhere to go. And I'm like, I wasn't going to roll up my window like a wuss. I wasn't going to just keep my window down, let him like punch me through my window. So I'm like, all right. Go face the music. You said what you said. Back it up. Get out of my car. Walk around the front of my car, and he's already out of his truck, and he gets right in my face. And he's, like, saying, you know, you little blah, 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 blah. You want to talk blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, man, you almost hit those old people over there. You're, like, you're the one that almost hit my car, and you said something. I just said something back and told you where you blah, blah, blah. Long story short. And he goes, I don't even know what old people you're talking about. I turned, my, I took my eyes off him. That was my mistake. But I took my eyes off him. I pointed where it was. I'm like, those old people are walking across the street right there. And as I look back, he spits in my face. Mm. I'll never forget him. <laughs> and I, it was, he was basically the size of you, about as big as you, blonde hair, mustache. I didn't even miss a beat. I don't even know. I don't even remember thinking. Is his spit hit my face? My hand made a fist, and I just, <laughs> and I caught him on the chin, dropped him. And I'm like, I, my eyes get this big. I'm like, I didn't even know what happened. I just spit hit my face. I reacted. And I've always had a really good right right overhand. And so I dropped the dude, and I'm like, he hits the ground. And I'll never forget. And he hits the ground, hits the ground on his back. His feet go up in the air, and his eyes were this big because he couldn't believe a little guy like me. A little guy like me just dropped him. And I'm like, Dude, if you don't get on top of him right now, he's going to get up and kill you. <laughs> so, I, long story short, I get on top of him. I start beat, you know, swinging on him. We're, like, yelling at each other through the commotion. He's all dazed. He stands up because he's a big dude, and I grab him, throw him on the hood of my car, follow him, and I'm just, I'm just wailing on him because I was pretty pissed off about the whole thing and the fact that he almost hit the, the elderly people and that he started the whole thing. So, long story short, some people pull me off of this big dude. And he's, like, staggering, still talking smack, and I'm telling him where he can go, and he's a disrespectful you-know-what. And, uh, you know, that whole thing, he gets in his car and drives off. Pretty fortunate he didn't, like, have a gun or go and grab a knife or whatever. But after that, I, like, went home. I'm, like, shaking. I call my dad. He's like, well, good job. You've always had a good right hook and known how to defend yourself. But he goes, be careful. You never know who has a gun. And so after that, I was like, you know what? It's time to actually get into training and not just like, 
know, hope that you can swing on someone. And so the next year, I actually started my first jiu-jitsu class in 2006. But if that fight hadn't happened, I'm not sure I would have gotten the training because uh, I was actually teaching at Patrick Henry High School. I was the JV uh, soccer coach. Mm. And so, and that was my first year of actual coaching. This was 2004, 2005. And I fell in love with it. And that incident happened. And I'm like, I went like the next week, I went and signed up at the Gracie Baja Gym in Del Mar. Uh, my old coach, Marcelo Perea, I used, uh, used to teach there. And it just blew up from there. I was still playing soccer. I was still coaching soccer, but I fell in love with Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I was there like a week, and I was already hitting triangles on people and just using my leg. I've always been able to scramble really fast. One of the reasons I was so good at rugby. If my father would have put me into wrestling at a younger age, I probably would have done something with wrestling because I was always so fast. But it translated really well into jiu-jitsu. I was in love with it from then, and that's where my journey actually started. But that fight, that incident, that bigger dude like getting in my face was what I I was like, all right, time to time to go do some jujitsu. And it started like eight years before when my old Brazilian ex girlfriend's brother was like, Aaron, do perfect jujitsu. You know, you need to get him to jujitsu. And then I was like, all right, it's time to take it seriously. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So th- the seed was planted. Yeah. And then it takes getting into you know an actual fight, right? Yeah. A, yeah. a potential life or death situation. Yeah. You know, and you know. That happens, and you get this inspiration. Okay, I really got to understand the the nuances and the art of how do I defend myself. Yeah. Right? And so you dive into jiu-jitsu, and you've done how many professional fights? Uh, nine now. Nine, okay. Nine. nine. And so... And I'm one of the few um, athletes, fighters, or especially coaches, and I'm not trying to, like, say that other coaches aren't qualified or, no, no. or anything about other no, coaches. you are great you at know. your craft. You know, say I it. have respect for all the other coaches, but I've done all the sanctioned uh, fighting sports. I've had boxing-sanctioned fights, MMA-sanctioned fights, and now Muay Thai, my last fight, four months ago. And that was one thing I always wanted to do when I first got into it, um, was be a complete martial artist. Because I was in the sport for about a year, and that's when I started uh, Muay Thai in 2007, when I moved down from Encinitas to San Diego and started training at North Park Undisputed, which that and then Black Tiger up on Miram- off Miramar Road and then the old Knockout Fitness right off the freeway in Mission Valley were like the three first OG MMA gyms. Yeah. But North Park Undisputed is what really put it on the map. And there was a, a point in time where like all the – Big local MMA San Diego fighters were all training there. And that was where we all started in 2007. But I always knew, especially after, you know, you know, a few months into jiu-jitsu, like, okay, well, what happens if you can't get the fight to the ground? You know, what happens if you got to fight two or three guys? You know, jiu-jitsu is going to be very good against one-on-one, but if I'm on the ground with someone trying to submit them or hold and grapple them, and their friend just comes up and kicks me in the face, stabs you in the back, yeah. So after about a year of that, I knew I needed to get into actual striking because, like I said, it was um, I, when I first started, I had no aspirations to actually fight. I just wanted to be able to defend myself, defend my like my, you know, girlfriend or the ones that I love. And so that's when it kind of translated over into uh, uh, striking. And uh, from that very first fight in 2008, I always wanted to be able to um, say because I knew after about a year of doing it that, I, okay, I want to I open my own gym one day. I want to be a, a fight coach. 
but I knew how much it took, how much it demanded. And I knew if I didn't get out there and, you know, do what I was never really happy about, I, w- I was very, I haven't really enjoyed very many of my fights. To be honest, my last two fights, my boxing fight, my Muay Thai fight, were the only ones I really enjoyed, mm. to be honest. I don't really like fighting. But I knew if I didn't get out there and do it, that I couldn't uh, one day be in a corner of other fighters, you know, professional or amateur, you know, when they're in a tough position. And I'm like, you know, don't quit. You know, let's, let's fight through this. Let's work our technical get up. Don't tap to the choke. There's only 10 seconds left. If they can't look over in the corner and see me and look at me and go like, coach has actually fought. He knows what I'm going through right now. Then I couldn't really ask them to give everything they've got. I knew I, I knew I needed to fight. And so that's, that's kind of where it inspired me to start fighting when the opportunity came. Wow, that's powerful. And I think that's so important that you took it upon yourself that, hey, my goal is to coach and train, but for me to be the best coach and trainer, right, I really have to put it to the test, right, being a fighter, right? Absolutely. And and you are a great coach, you know, because I take your classes. I I'm not a fighter, <laughs> but everybody is so inspired by you. You know, it, it, it everybody is, is you know, the, from, from the fighters to the people that are just starting out, right, the way that you approach it is you're able to meet people where they're at, right, and understand where they want to go. So what I'm interested in understanding is that, you know, the mentality of a fighter, right, preparing for your first fight, right, and now coach, right, like talk about the process of training the fighters, like the mentality that they have, right, the, the grit, the tenacity, right, the people at victory, you know, j- just, just talk a little bit more about that, right, like what is the mentality that they have to have, like what is it that you're coaching and instilling in them, I know it's like a broad question, but really want to learn more about that. No, it's, um, it's a very good question. Uh, a lot of people, when they first start out, a lot of fighters are even like me. You know, they're like, I'm just enjoying this coach. I don't even want to fight. And I'm like, that's, you know, that's awesome because you have to be able to uh, reach all the target markets that work, walk in the front door. And I say this because most fighters, uh, I'm pretty fortunate. My girlfriend and I, we, we work really hard. We, we do make decent money. But most fighters don't have money. <laughs> they're not paying the yeah. bills. It's the working class professionals that want to get a good workout in. If they can, you know, learn some some self-defense skills in the process, great. Um, that's a big reason why we just mainly do pads in my noon class because it's not like the nighttime crew that comes in that's more um, fight-oriented, if you will. May, you know, my target market in that noon class is people who want to have a good workout in, and that's why I always lace in really high-level uh, uh, technique behind it but push you guys to a point cardio-wise where you almost think you're going to die or throw up. And then you make it, and you're like, I made it. I can do this. I can, like, push myself through adversity and everything. Is you have to be able to bridge all those gaps, you know, because uh, especially when you get into fighting, if you're going to fight at a high level, you have to dedicate a lot of your time to do it, a lot of your time. Yes. And unless you have a lot of sponsors that are really helping you, you're sacrificing your ability to make a lot of money to do it. But also at the same time, you're like the lead sled dog for the rest of the gym. If your gym isn't putting out not only fighters, but successful high-level fighters that show the fruits of the labor you go through and show high-level skill and are competitive at a, a, a both national and international level, then that takes away a little bit from the credibility of your gym. And so we have to bridge all those gaps. We have to do all those things. And so for me, I love to be able to, you know, be from 
a day one coach when you walk in the front door and you have no idea how to throw a jab to you know, like fighting and, or cornering high level professional fighters like Austin who's fighting for Combate uh, or Tyler Schaefer who just came to us who's fought for Combate. She's fighting for peak MMA now. Jarrell Simmons, 4-0 pro. He's the number three ranked, three ranked light heavyweight in California of all the professional fighters in California. And so, you know, I love being that coach that like day one, you can walk in my front door and you don't have a clue what's going on and I'll make you comfortable, show you the basics, make sure you have a good time, push you into your athletic limits and then inspire you to keep coming back and pushing yourselves. And, and since I've been at Victory, um, since we reopened after the Rona in like March 2001, um, I've taken probably, and not just me, myself, Coach Tick, my right-hand man, my brother, Coach Mike Lemaire, my brother as well. We're like, all three of them, we're just like this. Uh, Coach Rolando Perez, Coach James Thomas, you know, uh, the jiu-jitsu coaches, the black belts, the professors there as well, and Coach BJ Oriol, who's Mike Lemaire's right-hand man and one of my best friends in the world. We've taken a lot of day one people that walked in the front door with no clue how to throw a jab and actually have taken some of them to the point to where they're fighting at at a very, very high level, when, whether it's uh, MMA, Muay Thai, or boxing. Um, if, you've, if you've paid attention, that kid Mo Moises Rodriguez, um, who's now 4-0 in Muay Thai, all four fights are for WCK, he walked in our front door like April 2021. He just played soccer. He had never done any fighting before that. And uh, he's now 4-0. He's going to be fighting for a title next fight um, for World Championship Kickboxing, WCK, one of the top-level Muay Thai uh, fight organizations on planet Earth and especially in America. And he has yet to lose a single round in any of his fights. He had like three-point kickboxing bouts before he went full-on high-level amateur with WCK. The first two, they're just like he was beating the people up so bad, they're like, don't hit him hard or you're going to get DQ'd. I mean, it was just like, he's like, coach, can I get a fight? <laughs> And then he went into WCK, and his first fight was his toughest fight. He fought a really tough dude, Carlos uh, Valdez, from uh, 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 another San Diego Muay Thai gym called Valor Muay Thai, which puts out very high-level fighters as well. And they had a three-round war. Um, but, you know, he's been like a day-one person that walked in our front door and uh, shown the fruits of the labor of what you can become when you train under a group of coaches that are all on the same page, that uh, have a game plan to build you for success and the passion and time and energy to dedicate to do it. And uh, that's where we're, where we're really taking victory to another level from where it used to be um, before the Rona when pretty much most of the coaches that are there now, especially striking, none of us were there outside of uh, Coach James Thomas, the boxing coach, who's the GOAT, one of the best boxing coaches on planet Earth. So, and, um, you know, I have a, a, a very, very, like, set out philosophy of how to get you there too. It, you know, you know, walk through the front door, whether you've come from another gym or don't even know how to fight is we're going to get you ready, get you to a high enough level to where you can start training with the fight teams, be it Muay Thai, MMA or boxing. And MMA is a much broader spectrum because you have to have all the disciplines from striking, wrestling and grappling and jujitsu on the ground. And, um, you know, we're going to get you training with the teams, get you sparring, give you some good hard sparring rounds 
put you in the ring downstairs, you know, on certain nights where we're sparring and stuff like that. And then we walk them through. If it's Muay Thai, you're going to do these PKB point kickboxing bouts. And uh, there are no knockout fights. You're not supposed to swing hard to the head. It's because uh, it's not commissioned. It's insured and sanctioned, but it's not commissioned by the California State Athletic Commission. And so it's a good entry-level platform to get you into fighting without really worrying about a high-level risk of injury where, like, with me and Coach Mike or Coach Tick or Coach James or Rolando started, you just got in the ring or cage, and you could get absolutely knocked out or killed when we first started fighting in the mid-2000s. And so if you're going to do Muay Thai, we start you with those PKBs, and then, you know, we want you to rack up at least three good wins before we're going to put you in the WCK or IFS Muay Thai ring. If it's MMA, we're going to do at least one of those point kickboxing bouts, and then we're going to do at least one jiu-jitsu competition so that you've spent a whole camp in just striking, you know, two months where we're just worrying on your working on your Muay Thai, working on your striking, working on, you know, your, your striking skills, and then one strictly jiu-jitsu uh, camp because you're getting ready for a jiu-jitsu competition where we focused on your wrestling and your grappling skills and put those two together. And then Coach Tick and I, if you want to fight for the MMA team, uh, will then put you in. Usually, most of the people we use, we go to the Epic MMA cage because uh, uh, it's a very high-level amateur organization here in San Diego, one of the higher-level amateur organizations in, in America. And so we have a very drawn-out game plan of how you're going to get there if you want to fight. It's not like some gyms will take you two or three months in if you're just out there swinging with the sparring groups. They're like, okay, go take your first fight. Like for us, it's going to be about a minimum of six months, and that's like some of the fast, fastest fast-tracked athletes that we've ever had, like Moises or Hugh Martinez, Jason Ferry, that have just gone out there and kind of barnstormed through everybody, and then they're there every day. But we're going to really walk you along in a smart fashion. We're not just throwing you out there to get hurt or injured. We really want you to be successful and ready and properly prepared, and that's kind of the game plan we use to get you there in a, in a smart and not overly rushed fashion. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a lot to unpack. Uh, thank you, sir. Something I wanted to hit on is, you know, Victory Gym, right? That's, yeah. that's how we know each other. I go yes, there, right? Participate in the classes. I you in those noon classes, my man. Your energy is second to none. Thank you, Coach Pete. And I tell people about victory that it's just it's just something so different, right, with the culture, right? You have Jocko walking around who films his podcast, right? Yourself, Dean Lister, Mikey Lamore, right? All of these fighters, all these people training. But then you have, again, you know, people that are coming in for the first time. And I feel like it's so different from any other fitness gym team i've ever been a part of where there's no egos really it's just people like they're driven but they also have a self they have a respect for one another of where they are yeah you know talk a little bit about just like the uniqueness of a victory mma because i think it truly is a special place that just spawns competition but also spawns you know brotherhood sisterhood right right just talk about like just the unique aspect and culture of victory mma and like just all about that I'm glad you bring that up because where that really stems from, <clears throat> that culture, that amazing culture that we have there now, first and foremost, <clears throat> like I was talking about earlier, everything I believe starts at the top in every kind of like organization, business, if you will, you know, uh, group, team, atmosphere. Everything starts at the top with the leaders. 
and it goes all the way down. And uh, so if you're asking about why we have this great culture at Victory, it really starts first and foremost with our owner, Joe Menino. Mm -hmm. He is one of the best. I've worked for a lot of gyms. I've worked at a lot of gyms. I've trained at a lot of gyms. Um, and so this is no slight to any other owner that I've ever worked for because I've been very fortunate to work for a lot of great owners in my MMA career. Um, but he is one of the best owners that I've ever worked for. He truly cares. He gives us everything we ask for. He doesn't get in our way and tell us, you know, that you're going to teach this, you're going to teach like this, you need to do this like this, outside, you know, outside of anyone that's acting inappropriately. But, you know, we don't, we don't have that at Victory, and so that's a very good thing. So it all starts at the top with Joe, and it goes all the way down. Joe's been in um, – uh, he's been at that location – since 1993. Wow. That location used to be San Diego Racquet Club. And so, like, if you're in the CrossFit room or if you're in that intro class room with, like, the six heavy bags, next time, look up and look around and you'll see and you're like, oh, that's an old racquetball room. And so it used to be SD Racquet because his family, um, is they all played racquetball. They were all really good at racquetball. He's from Brooklyn, New York. And his uh, nephew and mid-90s was the number one rated racquetball player in america wow yeah and so the as victory mma used to be like 12 or 14 racquetball rooms you would come in they always had the sauna used to have a steam room back in the day uh showers locker room blah 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 and then the rest of it was all racquetball rooms it was just rackets and um joe and jocko have been friends for quite a long time and uh, when mma was starting to blow up in 2006 2007 uh, Jocko went to Joe and he's like, we need, we need to make this place an MMA gym. This is a new thing. It's blowing up. It's going to be here to stay. The UFC is kind of pushing this whole thing. And Joe was like, you know, the numbers on racquetball are kind of like not doing as well as it used to. And, you know, I've been thinking about what to do with this location or if this is going to be a successful model going forward. So he looked into it. He went back to Jocko. He's like, when do we start construction? And so Jocko was really the, the moving energy behind getting uh, that location turned into the gym that it is now, Victory MMA. And so uh, once again, it all starts with the leaders. And the, the, the three leaders there, the three owners, are Joe, Jocko, and Dean Lister. And, you know, at the time, <clears throat> Dean was still even fighting in the UFC, and Jocko was in his corner for all of his fights in the UFC. And he went, you know, when he was fighting in the Pride Fighting Championship in Japan back in the day, and so those three guys really were the energy behind starting the gym and then getting it to where, you know, it is now. And uh, it wouldn't be there, though, if Joe wasn't so supportive of all of us and kind of stayed out of our way and let us run the own show. Then the next step to why Victory is the gym that it is today is the coaches that are there. And all of us, every one of us, have been coaching for over 10 years now. And we've all been in other situations where, um, you know, the MMA thing about the MMA fight game, there's a lot of energy behind it. Um, there are also a lot of sharks in the water. And we can all fight. So it's not like, you know, when, when someone has a problem, you see someone somewhere, and it's that, like the people getting in the, the each other's face, and like, what, what, yeah. what? Like, you get in someone's face, you're going to get punched, you're going to get knocked out, you're going to get, you know, picked up and dumped on your head and on the concrete or taken down and choked to sleep. We can all fight. And uh, we've all been in other gyms where there are a lot of sharks in the water. And, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a big pool of great whites and makos and tiger sharks. 
You know, there's some really, really big fish. They, they're badass. There's some crazy motherfucking crazy guys like Makos. And there's some tiger sharks out there. Don't even know what they're doing. Don't care. We'll go eat a tire. We'll go just bite someone. You know what I'm saying? And we've all navigated these waters at other gyms. <clears throat> None of us take for granted the great job that we have now. And we've all built this culture. And I'm <clears throat> very big on it. But so is every other coach and prof black belt professor that's there at the gym is that we all get along, we all see eye to eye, and we're all there for the one first and foremost thing that's the most important thing about that gym, and that's you and every other member in that gym. We're not there for ourselves. We're not there to stroke our egos. We're not there to, like, tell everybody how cool we are. We're there because, like I say, and I say it all the time, when you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And not a single coach in that gym does not take that phrase for granted. We all do what we love, and to be honest, I can't believe we get paid. I say it all the time. I can't believe they pay me to do this. <laughs> Every day I walk in that gym, I'm just like, you know, I can't get up to the locker room without five people saying, hey, coach, hey, coach, hey, coach. That just absolutely makes my day. Absolutely makes my day because I've worked some really hard jobs. I worked in the restaurant industry for almost 20 years where there's lots of good people, but it gets old, and I was in management for six of those 20 years, and management is rough, you know, like – the guests are always complaining about something, trying to get something for free. The employees are always calling in sick or complaining about each other, arguing with each other. It's kind of cutthroat in the mm -hmm. restaurant industry because it's very like, like this is, I should be getting the raise and I should be getting that better shift and I should be getting that better section and blah, blah, blah. And then the owners, you know, chewing on your, on your rear end because well, we're, we're missing profits and liquor costs aren't good and food costs aren't good and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so... Um, all of us coaches have been from different backgrounds, but we've all been in tougher places, and we're very, very thankful to have this great opportunity. And I think every single one of us is very adamant about not letting anybody into that circle that doesn't see on that same level of trying to lead. Leaders must lead. I learned a lot of the way that I run my classes from my time in restaurant management. And I was very fortunate in restaurant management to have some district managers and general managers that actually took leading seriously. And they actually cared about their employees, and they instilled a lot of great values in me that I haven't forgotten to this day. And one of them is that leaders must lead. And, you know, we have to lead from the front, and we have to be beyond reproach, and we have to, you know, take our job seriously. But at the same time, if we ain't having fun, what are we doing? You know what I'm saying? If we ain't having fun, what are we doing? So all of us coaches pretty much won't stand for any, like, sharks in the water or bad people to come in there to change the culture. And that's kind of really where it stems from. We're all on the same page. We all see eye to eye. We all love each other. And we're not fighting over this fighter or that fighter. We know we're there to together, collectively, build the best fight team on planet Earth and uh, create an environment that people can really thrive under and then first and foremost enjoy themselves every day they walk in that gym. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and what I really like is you talk about the leadership, right, from Joe, Jocko, Dean, setting the vision, right, setting the culture, right, of who we're looking for as coaches, who we want to work for us. And from there, you know, we're all these people from different backgrounds because that's what a team is, you know. What I've learned in the military, what I've learned, you know, being parts of teams is that, you know, people are, they come from different backgrounds of life, right? Different parts of the country, race, religion, creed, this, that, and the other. But you all come together for a shared goal and vision, right? Yep. And within that team, there's individuals, right? And you talk about your experience in the restaurant industry. 
and all this other experience and how you apply that into something that's not directly correlated. However, it is correlated in terms of the skill set of leadership, of accountability, right? Meeting personalities, right? Coming to work and, and, and having that high energy, right? Setting the tempo. And I think that's really important because, you know, no, nothing is going to, you know, you can take a leadership course, you can, you know, go get a degree, this, that, and the other, right? And it's certainly good information and good education. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not d- downplaying education, but yeah. the only way that you become a good leader is by leading, right? Leaders lead, as you said. Yeah, leaders must lead. And that's why I say, like, it's in the, it's an acronym in the word. It's team. Together, yeah. everyone achieves more. There you go. And we have to work together towards that goal. And, you know, we're pretty fortunate that all of us coaches all really get along and we all kind of like really, really um, believe in that kind of like together, everyone achieves more. Not even just between, you know, the, 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 the students, but between the coaches as well. I, I've never been in a gym, never been in a gym where people weren't like, you know, that's my fighter, or this is, you know, my team, or I'm the head coach, or I, you know, and none of us, absolutely none of us have that, have that, that feeling or, or, or that aura about us. And, you know, especially like, you know, people like Mike Romare and Dean Lister, two of the best fighters on planet Earth. They're both world champions, and they're two of the most humble people you may ever meet in your life. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And, and they really kind of set that tone from the top down because everybody loves them. I mean, you see Mike Romare, guy's freaking chiseled out of stone. Oh, yeah. He's like Greek the God. most handsome person yeah. in the world, and he's the nicest guy you'll ever meet. You look at Dean Lister. I mean, he literally looks like like a, a modern caveman. He has no neck. Like, how could you even hurt that guy? And you know, he just walks by and he's like, <coughs> and you're like, "Hey, professor, how's it going?" He's like, "Hey, man, how are you? Good to see you." Right. You know, I, I'm like, "I love you, brother." And he's like, "I love you too." He's the nicest guy in the world. He fought in the Pride Grand Prix. Fought in the UFC. He's an Abu Dhabi world champion. And he's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And then Jocko. Yeah. Like, I can't even begin to. And I, I know you know from your military experience, tell you the things that that guy has seen. Oh, yeah. And he's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. He stops, takes pictures with everybody, stops to say hi to everybody, you know. And, and you know, those those three guys really set the tone. And then the, the, the aura, the atmosphere, the energy, and uh, the professionalism and integrity that we all kind of embody and we feed off of that. And, and like, I, I can't really say it enough. Joe Menino is, is, is everything that that, you know, really starts with and trickles all the way down because he's the one who pays the bills. He's the one who pays the bills at the end of the day. And he's done everything any of us have ever asked. You know, Jocko wanted, you know, a good place to do videos and everything. And that's why he started, did that gym, that amazing Jocko mat upstairs in the middle room. Um, you know, Mike wanted new heavy bags. Joe didn't even blink. We got new heavy bags. We're getting new mats in that big room. Mike asked for those. The mats are kind of a little bit old. No problem. Boom. You know, everything we could ever want. He's given us that, um, platform to be successful and to give the guests and, uh, the fight team, uh, everything they could possibly need to be successful, happy and thrive. You know, absolutely get better together. I say it all the time. We get better together. Absolutely. And what I wanted to say is you talk about Jocko, right, Dean, Mikey, guys that can, you know, kill you, right? They're trained yeah. fighters. <laughs> and in my experience, it's the people that 
you know, as Teddy Roosevelt said, walk softly, but carry a big stick. Yeah. These are three individuals that carry very, very big <laughs> sticks, multiple <laughs> big sticks. Yeah. Right. You know, like, but they, you know, cause they're fighters, you know, they, they know what they're capable of. And in my experience, it's the people like that, that are the most humble, the most nice because they've seen it. They know what it is. Right. You know, you, you know, right. The person that's always pounding their chest at the bar drunk, like looking for a fight. They're usually the ones that end up getting their butt kicked. Yeah. Just in my experience, because the real fighters, like the people that are, you know, tough people, they're not out there looking for fights, right? Yeah. Because no. they know. Because they usually know that's the most humble person in the room. Exactly. When I was younger, um, you know, I did uh, taekwondo, kung fu, and karate as a kid. But then uh, my old best friend, Jeremy Sherwood. When I was a teenager, we uh, lived together from from 12 years old until I was uh, almost 16. And uh, before that time, he did, took Togachiru Ninjutsu under Stephen K. Hayes, the old American Togachiru Ninjutsu Grandmaster, Stephen K. Hayes. And uh, so he taught me uh, a lot of skills then. And a lot of my uh, ninjutsu training which is very hard to find. You can almost find no ninja, actual ninjutsu uh, gyms left in America these days. Um, but he used to, he used to, he used to beat me up pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like beating, beating me up, but you know, he showed me a lot of, you know, uh, really good techniques and everything. And our training was pretty rough back then. And he always told me, he's like, and this is, we're talking 86 through 1990. And he always told me, he's like, you know, Aaron, Everyone, you know, thinks they're tough. And, like, you see these big muscle-bound American dudes. He goes, the person you should really be afraid of is that old Asian dude walking down the street with the straw hat on that just leaves everybody alone and super quiet. He's like, that's a guy that's going to whoop everybody's butt. Mm -hmm. And I never just, I never lost, like, thought of that or, or, or track of that. Or, you know, and those trainings actually taught me a lot that translated over into uh, my MMA career and, and being a coach as well. And so, yeah, like you said, <laughs> speak softly, but carry a big stick. <laughs> Amen. 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 So I know that we're talking right now about, you know, fighting and, and, and Muay Thai and, and the gym and everything. I wanted to zoom out and just talk about in general what's going on in America, right? Because we know obesity rates have drastically increased over the last 30, 40 years. And it just continues to skyrocket, right? I mean, our life expectancy has gone down for the first time in generations, right, for multitudes of reasons, right, suicide, drug overdose, but also, right, unhealthy habits, right? And so I just want to get your perspective on what's going on in America, right, why we've neglected our bodies, right, why we've developed these poor practices where it comes to nutrition and health and you know, what it is that people, like, just in your mind, you know, what is the solution there? It's a, that's a pretty deep rabbit hole to get down. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, you got to have a lot of confidence to get up on your soapbox to uh, talk about things that get that deep. But that really comes down to the almighty dollar. And uh, how far that goes back, that goes back <clears throat> all the way to, uh, John D. Rockefeller, when he was uh, first taking control and power of America mm. back in the day, and he was quoted as saying he doesn't want a nation of thinkers. He wants a nation of workers, obedient people that uh, don't really want to think and or ask any pertinent questions, just do what they're told. 
And you could also argue that goes back to uh, when the Federal Reserve took a control of the U.S. monetary system in 1913. Since then, it has just been all about the almighty dollar, and uh, American values have been basically trampled on uh, for uh, the, the, the almighty dollar. I wouldn't say that even the greater good. But the, the main thing behind um, American or unhealthy Americans, obesity rates, skyrocketing diabetes, mental health, the whole nine, is um, uh, the, 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 the food pyramid and uh, uh, corporate profits. And the uh, main reason, like, why so many foods that are allowed in, a, in American, you know, society that are approved by the FDA are completely illegal in over 80, 90 percent of other countries on planet Earth, even across Europe. There are so many, like, if you buy a, a box of Fruit Loops in America and a box of Fruit Loops in uh, uh, anywhere in Europe, you're going to have, like, <clears throat> I don't know, 70 different ingredients in an American box of Fruit Loops, and there's going to be, like, 16 in a European one and all of these really come down to corporate profits and uh, the profit margins really come from things being able to stay on shelves indefinitely you know how long how long can a, a bag of Twinkies a box of Twinkies stay on the shelf without going bad I mean 20 years you know what I'm saying and that's where corporate profits really come in and in a nutshell if something can say stay on a self a shelf indefinitely without going bad it's going to kill you if you eat it. Yeah. The things that are going to go bad within six months on a shelf and actually in three to five days are the healthiest, thi- healthiest things you can consume. And that's why, you know, an, an organic, uh, low preservative-based diet is what's really going to keep you extremely healthy. And so when you get into all these FDA-approved ingredients that are allowed in American foods and when you really, the real killer behind American ke- health is the pesticides sprayed on all the crops, that even the preservative-laden foods, the base is made up of. And that's why, um, you know, uh, the, the maker of Roundup, DuPont Company, has been gotten their sock suit off in the last, like, 10 years because Roundup has proven to cause cancers, uh, namely lymphoma. And uh, a lot of gardeners um, out there that have been spraying Roundup on things forever have been coming down with cancers for years. And there's lawsuits out there left and right. You'll see them on TV. It's got to pay attention for these Roundup lawsuits. And so that is pretty much the number one thing. That's why 90% of food in my household is certified organic. And it's not because I'm bougie or because, you know, like I think, you know, like on the um, South Park movie where the people driving around electric cars smelling their own farts because they think they're, you know what, doesn't stink. It's that the the glyphosate in this Roundup they're spraying on all these crops destroy your gut microbiome and yeah your, your gut microbiome is what regulates a majority of your health from your immune system to your digestive tract and those two things are the number one thing that are triggering the unhealth unhealthy revolution if you will in america today and so that's why when people are like oh what about this i'm like is it organic they're like oh i don't know i'm like well if it's not organic you shouldn't be eating it especially if you're in fight camp and you're trying to get you know yourself as healthy as possible and so your gut microbiome is where everything that triggers your health stems from. It all starts there. And you can really re-jumpstart your gut microbiome by starting a proper diet every morning. And that's why I drink an Athletic Greens Power Shake. It's not Athletic Greens. I actually drink Purium, Certified Organic um, Power Shake. And then I'll have a little bit of protein powder. 
and you can reset your gut microbiome because people talk to me about fasting and it's very healthy for you. But in truth, the name breakfast comes from that. It's in break the fast. terms. You break your fast. Yes. Can you imagine if you didn't eat for eight hours in the middle of the day? You'd be grumpy and hangry and stay away from me. You fast every night on a small scale. And when you wake up in the morning, you have a chance to reset your gut microbiome. And um, it all starts with that first meal of the day, what you put in your, in, your, in your gut. And most people are eating terrible breakfasts and starting off with, you know, coffee with, you know, heavy creams and, and refined sugars. And sugar is one of the worst things that really is killing America these days because everyone's just eating normal white sugar. It's, it's you completely refined sugars, and those sugars really destroy um, the, the makeup of your uh, blood purity and your gut microbiome. And in a nutshell, that's where it really starts, and that's what is triggering this unhealthy American revolution, if you will, is that people are just eating anything off the shelf and thinking that it's fine, and it's not. It's actually, that's what's destroying Americans from the inside out. Wow. Wow. That is powerful. And, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just in terms of what we've done for expediency and prioritize profit over health, I mean, there's clearly a, a linkage there, right? I mean, yeah. it's more expensive to buy a lot of that food that's healthy and organic, right? The steaks. It can go bad fast. Exactly, right? And I also think you talk about the food pyramid where, in my mind, you know, it's like, you know, you should be eating all of these carbs, just like carb, yeah. carb, carb, carb. And not not that carbs are bad, but just it's like you you need to be eating like way more carbs and protein, and that's just to me like doesn't make sense. Yeah, we got to balance all yeah. of those. We got to balance all those with healthy proteins, good leafy greens, carbs, fibers, the whole nine. But when when you really understand what makes you healthy. It's eating foods that aren't slathered in, in pesticides, which they spray on almost all our cr all your crops if they're not certified organic, and low preservative-laden foods that, work in, that can go bad fast. And that's where corporate profits lose their money. It's like, you know, have you seen that tray of a McDonald's fat, uh, Happy Meal? Yeah. It's been on a tray. It doesn't for, go bad for like ever. it doesn't go ever. bad forever. Things still sitting there for crying out loud. Crazy. But if you put like an organic steak out in the in the lawn in the sun, that thing would biodegrade and literally not even be there in, in a month. It would just vanish and go back to Mother Earth. And that's, you know, in a nutshell, when we understand that regenerative process, we're not that far away from it. It wasn't that long ago that we were literally just leaving the cave, trying to get something to eat without being eaten in the process. And, you know, everyone thinks that like, you know, we can eat all these different foods and just throw whatever down our, our pie hole and our, you know, our stomachs are like garbage disposals. They're not. Mm. We're not that far away from a few hundred years ago, you know, when we were hunter-gatherers and everything was organic. People ask me, they're like, what do you think about elk? I'm like, you know, like if you're hunting, you know, like, well, that animal's drinking river water, as pure water as you can pretty much find, and eating organic grass from the backcountry and so that very healthy, you know, that very healthy meat is going to sustain your body. And that's what we were all doing back in the day. But we've gotten so far away from that, from the big corporations and the change that happened in America 110 years ago. Uh, and since then, you know, it has really let that corporate greed take over. 
Well, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> there's so much more to say there. Oh I yeah, mean, I could go on forever, but I'm trying to like lock it down because we've already <laughs> burned through 50 minutes. Like it was like five. No, absolutely, <laughs> it's, crazy. it's crazy. Absolutely, I mean. The American diet definitely needs to change, and people need to be educated, too, yeah. like you say, of what's all going on. Mm-hmm. But I did want to hit on another part of that equation, and, you know, as someone who's a father, right, family man, who was raised with a the, with the strong father, you know, the epidemic of, of young men in this country, and I think just men in general, right, you see the suicide rates rising in young men, depression, anxiety, Right, I think that's something that we need to talk about too. As somebody who's helping coach and train young men about how we can, you know, step up and as men and 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 and, and just talk about the issues of that from your perspective. Um, that's really, especially these days, <clears throat> pushed from you know social media platforms trying to tell younger people that they need to be something they don't. Yeah, you know, when uh, you know, uh, back in the day it was you know the American dream was being able to buy a home before when it was still affordable. Uh, you know, have a, a two cars and, and three kids and a dog and a yard. That was the American dream. That was what we strived for. That was, you know, happiness is what you call a great life. And now it's supposed to be like, you know, be this rich baller and have all this wealth and, you know, this and that or that or this. And it, it's like telling people a false reality. And if you don't attain it, if you don't, you know, uh, uh, come to that you know whatever turn that corner that you're a failure and that couldn't be farther from the truth it's just you know really like believing in yourself and you know finding someone that you can settle down with and be happy like so many people these days are cheating on each other and you know that 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 really kind of like permits depression and everything like that because you should really be you know happy with you know with simplified you know realities and 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 be the greatest version you can possibly be and be proud of it. Be happy it. Be someone you can look in the mirror and be proud of. And most of these celebrities can't even do that. Most of them end up, you know, getting all this kinds of plastic surgery to try and remain young and relevant and everything. And they end up getting older and, you know, they're, they're, they're very uh, unhappy with what they've become because they were never really happy with themselves in the first place. And, um, you know, for me, I just... I love the things I love. I love being around good people. I love inspiring people. I love my family. I love my lady goddess and my, my two kids. My two kids mean the world to me. And, uh, you know, my students are very much my family, too. A lot of them are, like, kids to me as well. And so for me, it's just, you know, take not taking anything for granted, being happy with, like, you know, where your life's supposed to be and where you're supposed to be and not constantly just wanting more and more and more. Like, sometimes you look at all these corporations or these rich people and they just, like, wanting more and more. Like, how much money do you possibly need? Yeah. But, you know, they're in kind of like, a, well, he has a bigger yacht than me. I need a bigger yacht. You know? I mean, if you wonder what's really pushing them, like, why could you actually, how could you actually want any more money for crying out loud? You yeah. have everything. You have, like, five mansions. Yeah, you're flying all over the place. Well, this guy has a bigger yacht than me. You know, you're a gazillionaire. And, uh, you know, it gets down into, a, when you get into that big fish, you know, club, um, the way they look down on average people and everything. And that's a very deep rabbit hole to go down as well. We could, we're running short on time. We could do a whole podcast on that uh, issue. But for me, it's just kind of like being happy with who you are, what you have, and uh, do the best with what you can. 
know, be in the moment. That's what I like to say a lot is a lot of people aren't in the moment. When you live in the moment, that's where happiness lies. Because when you live in the past, that's where depression lies. When you live in your mind in the future, that's where anxiety lies. Yes. When you can live in the moment, happiness lies there. A lot of people are, we're all just basically driving a car for the most part. And a lot of people won't stop looking in the rear view mirror. And they're running over stop sign after stop sign after stop sign. They're like, my life isn't where I want to be. When all these stop signs were telling you, or these signs going, go left for happiness. Stop right now. Don't drive yourself off a cliff. You know? And everyone's just, most people are living in the rear view mirror. It's why people are so depressed. Because they can't stop thinking about the past. We're all just basically... In a boat, one of my old general managers told me this a long time ago when I was kind of like lost and I was like, I'm not sure about that. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, Aaron, we're all in a boat in a, in a lake and we're just trying to get from one dock to the other. He's like, right now, your boat, you've lost your oar and you're like drifting off to the middle of the lake. I'm just grabbing the back of your boat, redirecting you towards that other dock, giving you a push and handing you handing back thank you gave me some skills to deal with issues that i was having and that's a big way that you can look at life we're all just trying to get from one side of the lake to the other sometimes we get lost we just need to get someone to grab the back of our boat redirect us give us that push towards that dock give us our oar back but it's up to us to get ourselves there and a lot of people that are unhappy in life it's because like i said you're living in the past depression lies there or you're consumed with the future which what has it what mm. hasn't happened yet that's where anxiety lies. Happiness lives in the moment. That's why I stay living in the moment. Absolutely. And it's, it's you have to find that balance and medium too, right? I mean, well you certainly have to learn from your mistakes and, and you know, reflect on the past, but don't let it define you, no. which I think is important, yeah. right? You correct your mistakes. But also, in, in, in the future, right? Have plans, like be ambitious, yeah. but understand it's a process of, yeah you getting there right like hey it may it may not happen tomorrow heck it might not even happen on your timeline it'll yeah. happen in, in in god's timeline yeah. but in be okay it with letting things fall into place absolutely you know, be okay with just kind of letting things play out as they will and take you know every day don't take any day for granted just live in the moment and enjoy what you can do what you have where you are love it well we're gonna wrap it up here in a, in a couple minutes so i just wanted to Ask one final question and then also give you the opportunity to plug yourself or where people can find you if they want to take a class. Um, so the final question I have for you, Aaron, is, you know, what inspires you every single day, you know, to bring that high energy and passion? Um, I got to answer that. I would have to really quick. It, it really started when I first started teaching in 2008 back in North Park Undisputed. And uh, this old Marine, Todd Vance, uh, who did a bunch of tours in Iraq, um, and at the time was one of the toughest fighters in the gym. I was teaching a boxing class and he's like, man, Duder, he used to call me Duder all the time. Duder. He goes, I love the way you teach classes. And I was like, do you think I'm too rah-rah? Do you think I'm like too like boisterous? He goes, students know when their coach is over it. He goes, I don't care what anybody else says. I love the way you teach. F the haters. You do you, Pete. You do you. You keep teaching with that passion because I love it. I'll take one of your classes any day of the week. And I was like, Todd Vance just said that about me, like, oh, my God, my ears are on fire. And that really taught me how to teach a class and to never not put my heart and soul into it and enthusiasm. And uh, then to leave, because we're down to 80 seconds, I really want to just give a big shout-out to uh, you for having me on. Thank you very much. It's been an honor. 
uh, Joe Menino for running the best gym on planet Earth and always having my back and being like a father figure to me. And uh, my two main sponsors, which really, really support me and have my back, Moncal Muay Thai. Uh, Cookie from Moncal is one of the greatest supporters in the Muay Thai, San Diego Muay Thai community, and she like just really supports us on another level. And Mikey's Meals, my meal prep sponsor, who delivers you know amazing meals to my front door every Sunday and has always had my back. And I couldn't do it without them. And I appreciate you having me on, my friend. This was a great time. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, just really quick, where can people find you? At Victory MMA, uh, 3666 Midway Drive in San Diego, California, right next to San Diego Sports Arena, the greatest MMA gym. And it's my one of my main life's passion is to make Victory MMA an absolute household name in the MMA world, worldwide. And uh, that's my dream, my passion, my goal. I won't stop until it's a reality. Wow. And social media? Uh, uh, Pete619. Uh, or Aaron Pete MMA on Instagram. Aaron Pete, A-A-R-O-N-P-E-T, MMA on Instagram. Got it. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, brother. It's been an honor. I appreciate you very much, very much.